Hello, welcome back to GEMCAST. My name is Christina Shenby. I'm our host. I'm an emergency medicine physician and trained in geriatric EM. And I'm joined today in this very interesting time in our country by Kasum Matthews. Kasum is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Mount Sinai in New York City. And what has been going on in the last week in New York City is blowing my mind and is making me very concerned about how we're going to handle this in the rest of the country. So Kasum, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. And just as a quick caveat, we are going to be talking about her experience as the first COVID ICU attending at her institution in New York City. And we are going to avoid talking about politics or political issues. And the things that we state are her opinion or my opinion or our thoughts and interpretation of the literature and are not medical advice and not necessarily the views or opinions of our respective institutions. With that out of the way, tell me about your experience being the first COVID ICU attending up there. Well, Christina, it was definitely a mind-blowing experience, as you said yourself. It's been very different to be on service this particular week. This was actually my week of service that I was already scheduled to do. So I started my week covering both the COVID ICU as well as our medical step-down unit. But by day two, the volume had already gotten high enough that I was taken off of the step-down unit service. And by day three, they started giving me extra staff to help me out. I got a fellow by day three. Four, I got APPs and residents because the volume just went exponentially higher. More patients were getting intubated, more patients were being in ARDS, and unfortunately, we were no longer accepting patients that were under investigation for COVID, but really had to be positive and had to be critically ill with moderate to severe ARDS. So just in one week, going from one or two positive patients to now you're entire COVID ICU is full of very sick patients, many of them with ARDS, et cetera. So we're really seeing in New York what is that takeoff of the exponential curve. And I think it's so instructive to listen to what you have to say or other physicians have to say who have done that because those of us who are not quite at that takeoff of the curve can learn a lot. I think one of the most interesting things was that the flexibility of our staff. Everybody was very eager to join up and to help out, but there weren't numbers to begin with. So I had very eager residents who didn't have patients to take care of when about middle of the week. But by Friday, we had surged. We had expanded into a second ICU. We were having intubation after intubation at the five o'clock hour to seven o'clock, which is in theory, the end of our shift. During that time, I got four new admissions at the same time. The nurses were begging us, can we just slow it down just a little bit? Because of course, our documentation doesn't change. The admission Mm -hmm. practices doesn't change. And what I think that institutions often forget about is the amount of time it takes to don and doff our PPE Mm. in order to make sure that we can examine the patients, do intake, and make sure we stabilize them on the ventilator. Then we have another patient coming in. And... At our shop, we were limiting the number of people going in to limit exposure, especially to our trainees. And so the exams on a daily basis were primarily done by the attending. Hmm. Unfortunately, by the end of the week, the volume got high enough that my fellows were also having to see these patients and do procedures because one person cannot do it all. I had to have help 
from our other intensivists that were in-house. And fortunately, everybody was very flexible about it. But even over the course of this weekend, being in contact with other folks who've been staffing the ICU this weekend, is just that the numbers have increased, the attending coverage has doubled, and we've expanded by tomorrow morning to our fourth ICU. Wow. So I think this is so instructive to other places to say, hey, you need to expect to be doubling or tripling your attending coverage on many of these units. Or for example, in the ED, we are also doing something similar where we're trying to have only the attending see the very high risk patients or do the intubations to protect the trainees. But we need to think about how do we upstaff? I think the intubations that you bring up, Christina, are a really good point. When we think about exposure to our trainees and our APPs and even our nurses, what we're trying to do is minimize uh, aerosolizing procedures. And of course, the one that from a physician perspective is the most aerosolizing that unfortunately we're having to do a, like almost all the time on these patients is intubation. Because as they progress very quickly, very quickly, I'm talking like sometimes 12 hours into moderate to severe ARDS, they need to be intubated quickly. We, but we need to do it in a calm and collective fashion. So ha having an institutional policy around who's going to be there, who's doing the intubation, what the roles are, what helped us at Mount Sinai be very prepared to approach a patient who was essentially requiring intubation. Now, up until Friday, we were opting for early intubation, again, going from 100% non-rebreather to intubation because there was mixed evidence on the use of non-invasive modalities like BiPAP or high-flow nasal cannula, again, because of the aerosolization and the fact that most of these patients before they get intubated are not really in a negative pressure room if that's mm -hmm. limited at your institution. But after the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines came out on Friday about how to manage these COVID patients, we are now using high flow and BiPAP. It's just, again, these patients, they decompensate quickly. So we need to intubate them. So intubation is something that trying to limit the number of people who are in the room at the time of intubation and doing it in a way, you should be intubating the way that you are most comfortable with. Again, it has to be fast with as little risk of aerosolization of these droplets as possible. Can I ask a question about that? So you mentioned we want to intubate quickly, have the most experienced person do it. And for many of us in the ED, that will be using video laryngoscopy and do it quickly. Are there other things that we could do? For example, what part of the intubation is really what is aerosolizing? Is it when we're bag valve ventilating the patient? Because I can certainly intubate many patients without any bag valve mask ventilation. And would that reduce the risk of aerosolization? I think that that's actually something we've also done. We've stopped uh, bagging patients before. So, you know, in order to pre-oxygenate them, we're using 100% non-rebreather to do it. Mm -hmm. And depending on who's doing the intubation, it may be done with direct laryngoscopy or by GlideScope. Just depends on who's doing the primary intubation and what they're most comfortable with. But again, the bagging, we're not bagging these patients. Yes, I think that's such a great point. And just push your RSI meds, take a look, tube quickly, of try to avoid bagging up unless you have to in between attempts to minimize those aerosolized particles. Even after intubation, some of these patients don't have a lot of secretions, but some do. It's actually a very mixed bag. And I think in speaking with our infectious disease colleagues, some of these patients are developing co-infection with bacterial pneumonias and the like. So that may be part of it, but I'm not sure. There are suctioning that's needed. And so even the nurses 
and the attendings who are suctioning these patients should be very careful on how much they're doing and what they're doing. We are doing respiratory cultures now, but no bronchoscopy, no mini BALs, bronchialveolar lavages, because again, the risk of aerosolizing COVID. Let's jump in and talk about, first of all, who is getting sick from this? What have you seen during your experience here in the ICU? And does it reflect the numbers that have been coming up from national data? I think it's been pretty reflective of what we see in the national data. It's primarily older patients and those with comorbidities that are the sickest. We have seen a surge in the last week, though, of younger patients who don't necessarily have medical problems some of which are in my ICU right now and are intubated, unfortunately. But typically, they do have something else going on. Speaking to my colleagues in other states, however, that is not the case. Unfortunately, in Florida, there's a lot of young people who are there on spring break who are now all positive and who are getting critically ill. And they are not necessarily as equipped to handle this number of ventilated patients in some of their community hospitals. I think that the problem is, is that we're gonna come to a point where not everybody can be ventilated just because we don't have enough ventilators. When we first started hearing about COVID, it seemed like, oh, this is primarily a problem and the mortality is really focused in older patients. That is true in terms of the mortality rate, but we have a lot more younger patients overall than we do patients over 70. So if you look at the age 20 to 65, for example, Even though the rate of intubation per thousand people of that age group and the mortality rate are lower, we have way more people in that age group. So we're going to be seeing and intubating many, many young people in addition to the older people. We also have to keep in mind the fact that the national data is all comers. It's not limited to patients who are critically ill. And so once you've already hit that condition of being in moderate to severe ARDS, which is the primary reason cause of death in this population, we're seeing up near 50% of the population are dying. And that's especially in the older individuals, but also in younger people, maybe not at the high of a rate, but it is high. Let's talk a little bit about the elderly, and then we'll move on to all patients in general. Why are the elderly more susceptible? Is it just their comorbidities, or does it have more to do with ACE inhibitor use, et cetera? So that's a good question, and not one that we completely know the answer to. However, And again, my apologies to my friends and family who are over the age of 60, but this is the category of patients that they're considering elderly. We know that the immune system weakens with age, so that's going to put you at risk as you get older for viruses like this one, as well as co-infection with bacterial infections. Okay, that's already there. But on top of that, COVID-19 is primarily a disease that affects the upper and lower airways. So those with aging lungs are more at risk. What happens as you get older is that there's a weakening of your respiratory muscles like the diaphragm and a loss of the elasticity of the airways. So you're not really able to fight the infection like you should and withstand the impact that the virus has on and the toll it takes on your respiratory function, if you will. Now, the other problem with COVID-19 is it triggers the cytokine storm. Your whole body goes into this terrible inflammatory cascade. Think of it as like how we have in sepsis, this entire like severe sepsis to septic shock kind of thing. We're seeing that as well with COVID-19. People are quickly decompensating from respiratory perspective. 
they're developing acute kidney injury, they're developing cardiomyopathies, liver failure, every system is failing. They're on pressors, and it's a very critically ill state. And unfortunately, the elderly are less equipped because of their aging systems to withstand the brunt of this kind of systemic response. Wow. So you have not only the severe sepsis, sepsic shock, multi-organ system failure, but also ARDS and potentially co-infection with bacterial infections or bacterial pneumonia. So there's really a lot. I will also say you asked about comorbidities. We do know that those with chronic diseases are more at risk for these complications of COVID-19. So if you have an underlying liver disease, that transaminitis that we see in COVID-19 might be more severe. Mm. You know, if you have a baseline ischemic cardiac disease, well, you're the one who's going to get perhaps that STEMI or NSTEMI as a result of having the infection. Mm. These kinds of things have to be kept in mind. What about the ACE inhibitor use? Is that a factor? Well, so that's an interesting question. There's been both in vitro and as well as I believe in vivo modeling of this. And people have been worried about keeping their patients on ACE inhibitors or ARBs for the management of their hypertension or their cardiac disease. But as of right now, the data is not clear. Both the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, as well as other organizations have actually recommended they should continue taking their ACE inhibitors or their angiotensin II receptor antagonists because the, the evidence is not clear. That being said, if you have your patients already in renal failure, I'm going to hold them. Right. <laughs> Once know? they're sick, that's clear. And the idea I mean, is that the coronavirus binds to the ACE receptor, and so potentially being on an ACE inhibitor may upregulate the ACE the receptors. Is that correct? Re replication of the virus and how the virus grabs on is my understanding. But again, I'm not a microbiologist or a virologist. And when they've looked into this, the data is still coming out. So by tomorrow, there may be another study that suggests yeah. it is completely not a good idea to be on these medications. I just can't speak to that now. So really changing so quickly. As you've been seeing patients with this, how is it presenting? You mentioned that it progresses very quickly. What, are the, what is the course or the symptoms that you've seen? It's been primarily fever and respiratory symptoms, very cough, often non-productive, sore throat, chest tightness and shortness of breath that's been progressive. But we've also had patients without the fever who've just had massive fatigue and just really not feeling well. Like again, flu-like symptoms. We've also had patients who their only presenting complaint were fever and abdominal pain or diarrhea. Mm. So not respiratory this. at yeah. all. Wow. Um, and it, in those patients, it turns out they end up becoming COVID positive and they do end up getting intubated because they fail for other reasons. When we think about how it's presenting, we also have to think about how quickly it's progressing. Because again, these patients, while they're coming in with these symptoms, it may be very mild at the beginning, but I think I mentioned this earlier on in our conversation, Christina, that sometimes it's a couple of days and then they crump. Other times it's actually within hours. One patient I had, Within 12 hours, he went from being on nasal cannula to being intubated. He's someone without medical problems. And these crash and burn patients, there's, we don't have enough information on what their risk factors are to phenotype the patients that quickly decompensate versus those who sort of smolder along until they crash. But we mm. do know that once they're in moderate to severe ARDS, that some of them do well and they are. We do have a couple of patients that were able to survive and be extubated, but others 
it's too early to tell. In your experience now, having intubated and ventilated these patients, what seems to be working and what sorts of things have you tried? So you have to forgive me, uh, Christina, because even for us, the guidelines have changed in the course of a week in terms of what's recommended and what's not recommended. So originally, we were recommending early intubation on these patients, and we were trying to avoid high flow and nasal and non-invasive ventilation because of the risk of aerosolization. And these patients were going to fail anyway. That was the presumption. So we were going from nasal cannula up to six liters to non-rebreather. And then if they weren't doing well in non-rebreather, we were skipping straight to intubation. Now, as of Friday, we're inserted high flow and BiPAP for certain patients, depending on how they're doing and how much support they need. But for those that we do move quickly into intubation, and again, we're monitoring those folks on non-invasive because they too are at high risk for decompensation. For those patients who go to intubation, we're using primarily a volume control mode because we're managing it like Mm -hmm. we would manage a standard ARDS case. So think of it as standard management, standard recommendation from ARDSnet and the newer studies Mm -hmm. that have talked about driving pressure and like dynamic titration of PEEP. Because there's a lot of ARDS, we do have to have a standard approach to this because it's not going to be just intensivists that are managing these patients. So going by the ARDSnet recommendations for the looking at the tidal volume being low, mm-hmm. looking at the plateau, making sure it's under 30. These are good rule of thumbs to have on these patients to help guide folks that maybe aren't able to titrate up the PEEP based on a driving pressure of less than 15, for instance. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have the resource to do so, it is the recommendation that we do early proning in these patients. But unfortunately, a lot of institutions are behind and they haven't staffed up to be able to do proning as quickly as they need to because there's such a high number of patients who are in severe ARDS at the outset. To kind of summarize, when we are intubating these patients, now we can trial non-invasive or high-flow nasal cannula potentially to avoid an intubation, but we need to closely monitor those patients because they may crash and burn and need intubation pretty quickly anyway. When we're ventilating them, treating them basically like an ARDS, standard ARDS patient with low tidal volume, lung protective ventilation. So thinking, say, six cc's per kg tidal volume, and then titrating up the PEEP and the FiO2 in tandem, and you may require that high PEEP, high FiO2 in order to oxygenate adequately, and and using volume control. You can use pressure control, but pressure control, as you know, Christina, because I've been in your workshop and it's excellent. (laughs) Pressure control ventilation is great, but it has variable tidal volumes. And it does require more attention yes. to make sure that the tidal volumes aren't exceeding what you want, the target yeah. of six to eight cc's per kilo. So that is why I recommend personally a volume control ventilation, especially when you're busy and you're going to have too many patients to be able to do detailed bedside titration of the vent. I totally agree. I find volume control just a lot easier to manage. And then the other point you made was checking a plateau pressure to keep the plateau pressure under 30. Yes. And depending on your patient population, I recommend 35 for the obese, morbidly obese population, of Mm -hmm. course. Now, I will say that there are salvage maneuvers that are being discussed at every institution and being performed at every institution. For instance, our institution is revving up ECMO for these patients, for those who need it, we are using inhaled nitric oxide and flow land just like we would with other refractory hypoxemia. The evidence is not great 
it's just that when we have patients that are that sick, we're doing everything we can to try to save them. Let's talk a little bit about treatment strategies other than just the ventilation portion. I know there's a ton of research being done and you are leading several clinical trials at your institution. What are some of the things that are showing promise or that are in early stages and what things, for example, should be considered standard care, if anything, at this point? So thank you for saying that I'm leading these clinical trials, but that's definitely a bit of an overstatement. I am one of many dedicated researchers who are trying to support the integration of clinical trial screening and enrollment in the COVID ICU. What I would say is that in addition to standard care, standard care meaning giving everybody antibiotics, doing cultures, doing all the lab tests to make sure there's nothing else going on, and giving people the ventilator management, sedation, as would be recommended for any critically ill patient. We are using hydroxychloroquine on these patients. It's low risk to patients, but it is not a cure-all under any stretch of the imagination. And we have to be very careful about its use, especially in patients with prolonged QTCs. So there are frank cutoffs that we're using to administer hydroxychloroquine in this population. We are not using azithromycin, especially not in conjunction with hydroxychloroquine at this time. Although again, things might change with the ever-changing body of evidence that is growing based on case reports, observational studies, and things that are being published out of our colleagues in Asia and other parts of the world. Now, there are a couple, as I mentioned earlier, clinical trials that are going on, and a couple of them relate to remdesivir, which is an antiviral. I'm aware that it's available for compassionate use in critically ill patients in in certain parts of the country. That may be an avenue by which you can get it, but it does require that your patient not be on pressors, which Mm -hmm. is unfortunately, that's a very tight window that they're not on pressors. So our patients aren't getting it through the compassionate arm. We do have two trials in the pipeline to test it, both in mild cases as well as in monitor severe patients with respiratory failure related to COVID-19. The other drug that we have that's up and running in a clinical trial is cerulimab, which is a biologic agent similar to tocilizumab to try to combat this cytokine storm. It's an anti-IL-6 medication, and in theory, it's basically supposed to be a stop sign for the cytokine storm and hopefully allow it to dissipate and hopefully protect the patient from going into the fibrotic stage of ARDS as well as organ failure. But again, we're just recruiting patients now, enrolling them now, and it's too early to tell if this medication will work. Prior to that, we were using tocilizumab, again, off-label, but as I'm sure many places are experiencing, you're running out of that medication. So for off-label- And it's only week one. (laughs) So that's off the table as well. Other medications that people are using, like antivirals that are used in HIV patients, as well as IVIG, but those are not ones that we're using in our shop. There's also been a lot of controversy about steroids in this population. And even in the surviving sepsis guidelines that were published on Friday, it was very weak evidence to support its use in patients with severe ARDS. So I would caution people to use it because feel like the data is not clear. So to kind of summarize, steroids are out. Hydroxychloroquine may have some benefit, but certainly not a cure-all. Cautioning 
combining hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin because of the QTC prolongation concern. And then lots of drugs in the works and hopefully something will work. I wanted to return to one question about standard care that I realized we hadn't talked about and that is fluids. In standard sepsis or severe sepsis, septic shock, we tend to give lots and lots of fluids early, often, fluids are great, antibiotics early, source control. That's the core of surviving sepsis in general when we're thinking about of a bacterial cause. So how is this different now in, with COVID? Please don't give them fluids. The reality is, is that there is such high capillary leak in ARDS, and especially with COVID-19. As long as they're not impressors, I would be diuresing them. I think that's a great point because, as you said, there's overlap in terms of sepsis and COVID-19, and we're still going to see sepsis, and those patients we need to continue to treat with the aggressive IV fluids and antibiotics, et cetera, but our COVID patients, we need to be cautious with fluids because they're septic, yes, but in a different way, and the ARDS is just going to get a lot worse with fluids. The other thing you have to keep in mind is is that the more sedation you use, the more fluids you give, the more likely they're going to remain on the ventilator. And these are patients where you need to be very smart about what you give them to optimize their ventilation and help them get better to get them off the ventilator because you only have so many ventilators to go around. This is not the time nor the place to keep patients on ventilators for two weeks because you have that luxury. That's no longer the case anymore. That leads into the discussion of a really weighty topic, which is capacity and ethics. As you've said, you already now are overflowing into four of your ICU areas. Larger institutions may have more capacity to flex in that way, but other smaller rural community areas are not going to even have that capacity. How are you thinking about this, or what is your hospital system thinking about in terms of how do we decide this? Who gets intubated? Who gets an ICU bed? How long do we keep them on a vent? What are your thoughts on that? It is very difficult to answer because every institution is going to be a little bit different when it comes to this. I will say we have to take into consideration, and this is a conversation that you have to have with your colleagues in different departments, not just in your own silo, but this has to be a very interdisciplinary conversation along with your leadership about how to approach this before the surge hits your hospital. But also, it's a moving target, so it has to be an ongoing conversation. We, know, we have to be keeping track of the number of ICU beds that you have, the number of negative pressure ICU beds, the potential of expanding those negative pressure beds and the number of beds that you can flip into an ICU bed. You have to look at the number of ventilators, the number of CPAP machines that you can use for this patient population. And of course, the limited resource of the number of ICU physicians and ICU staff, because there aren't that many of us either. That is like four or five different major ethical issues that are brought up in just the first minute of thinking about this. So let's start with talking about beds and vents. How do we think about allocating that in a just manner that is going to be generally considered fair and also ethical? So I think we have to think about what resources you have at your hospital and what kind of network of hospitals you're in. I will say that uh, Mount Sinai is part of a network of hospitals. We have several hospitals that have ICUs. And in a normal month, 
we actually see quite a lot of hospital transfers to our shop because we're, we have more resources in our institution and more staff and more 24-hour services when it comes to advanced procedures and the like. But with the surge of cases that every hospital is seeing, unless it's for ECMO, we're really not accepting outside hospital transfers. We just don't have that luxury. Now, again, when it comes to community hospitals, they may not be able to transfer to outside hospitals. So they have to be looking inside their own hospital walls to see what kind of resources can they repurpose to better care for these patients. And that might mean taking resources away from other people. Meaning maybe this is a time when we're thinking about instead of everybody getting one to two nursing, maybe it's one to three or one to four. Again, my colleagues in, in some states are talking about split vents where two patients are on one ventilator. I believe the record is up to four, but it's because we don't have that many ventilators. The estimates that about 50% of all ICU missions in the country will require ventilatory support. And that was something published in the New York Times about a week ago, and that's almost a million patients will require a ventilator. But how many vents are actually available? Well, based on what's available in each hospital, and there may be stores like hidden away per state, based on what's in the emergency supply for the country, there's about 200,000. And these are the most recent numbers published by the Society of Critical Care Medicine by Neil Halpern and colleagues. Wow. So up to a million patients who may require ventilation, and we have 200,000 vents. This really goes back to the whole flattening the curve issue of if all those million patients come in in the next month, there will not be enough ventilators for about 800,000 of them. Whereas if we can flatten the curve and spread out those admissions over the next, I hate to say it, six months, eight months, who knows, then hopefully there will be enough ventilators for everyone. So it's very interesting that you say that about flattening the curve. There are physicians and researchers at our institution who are investigating statistical models to predict ICU bed days for these patients. And if we can get people to just stay home, to socially distance, and hopefully prevent them from getting coronavirus altogether, or at least delay the infirm to get the coronavirus, that will allow us to have the resources when the time comes for them to be ventilated without burning out the physicians taking care of them or running out of resources, including PPE. Now let's go to one of the most difficult decisions we can think about making, which is when we have a limited resource of these 200,000 vents and maybe even more limited ICU beds, et cetera, how do we make that decision of who gets a vent? And I will qualify this by saying, I'm asking your opinion, and at each institution, there should hopefully be ethics committees. I know in my institution, we have a multidisciplinary ethics committee that's meeting daily to try to plan for when this does happen so that we have a policy in place. But how do you think about that? Let me say for the record, it cannot be the decision of the physician on the front line to withhold or withdraw a ventilator. It Absolutely. cannot be because... Our field already suffers from burnout. This would just instill in us such a huge burden of moral distress that it would be terrible for the future of our field. So it is really vital that institutions, if they haven't seen a surge yet, 
to make a plan with the ethics committee, with the leadership, with understanding how many resources are available to them if and when your governor of whatever state you're in declares an emergency kind of thing. Because having a set of objective criteria takes the onus of that decision as the hands of the treating physician. And we've already have guidelines on this because people who've worked in other epidemics have published this in the times of a superstorm Sandy had to deal with this in terms of giving guidelines of what to do when it's disaster management and how to make these decisions. But it should be, if possible, a third party making these decisions or creating these guidelines to help us objectively decide as much as possible who ends up getting a ventilator. Because it cannot be my decision to do this. Because unfortunately, I may say I want this patient to be ventilated, perhaps not on objective criteria. And we already know that our estimates of prognosis on the basis of comorbidities are terrible. So to say on the basis of, oh, you have this or that disease, that you're not salvageable is not a reasonable decision. That being said, I do feel very comfortable saying that before COVID-19, there were certain patients that I knew if they got ventilated, they got intubated and were on a ventilator with high requirements that they weren't folks who were going to be able to get off the ventilator. To the leadership, of course, figure out your own policy. But to the treating physicians, if you have an opportunity to speak to the patient or speak to the, the family or the surrogate over the phone before intubation, find out what they would want. Because if we can just get a sense of a patient's values or their goals around critical care and end of life before we get there, we have a better shot of making sure that we provide goal concordant care. That's a really good point. And I love your point also that it should not be the physician in the ED or in the ICU making this decision about who gets fence if and when we get to that position of having a limited resource, both emotionally, morally, but also just the cognitive load of making that decision is enormous. We have to be able to focus our cognitive decision-making and our capacity on all the other things like vent management and antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera. We can't be also making these incredibly burdensome and challenging ethical decisions. The second point is what we can be doing now before they get sick is everyone should have a plan for their advanced directives and make it clear to their next of kin or have it in writing in their living will document if they would want to be intubated, assuming there is a vent available, because many people would not. And so we wanna make sure we are not going against an individual's wishes and also then reserving those resources for people for whom it is goal concordant. I think coronavirus should be the trigger for every family with someone who is older, someone who has a relative with comorbidities or immunocompromised status of any kind to have this conversation up front. You should be having it with your loved ones now before you even come into the hospital because totally the likelihood agree. is the majority of us are going to get coronavirus. One other thing, Christina, as we're talking about finding out what patients' goals and wishes are, there will come times where we know that for those we've provided critical care services to, it's not working. And 
unfortunately, the patient is failing. As we're talking about assessing patients' goals and wishes prior to intubation, we also have to understand that the patients that do opt for intubation, and even those who don't, there will be folks who don't do well, who will fail all critical care services. They won't do well. Their bodies will go into shock. And then the time will come to either withdraw care or they will code. I really think it's important that all hospitals, all staff have a plan in place for how families and loved ones of these patients will be able to say their goodbyes. Mm. In our shop, unfortunately, just for infection control purposes, the hospital is not allowing any visitors anymore, except in very limited circumstances, like for a pediatric case or what. But the ICs, there's no visitors. So mm. for every day, our ICUs have iPads, we have video conferences, people are using their iPhones to help families talk to their loved ones or see their loved ones. And we are providing daily, twice daily updates of how their loved one is going. That's actually one of the key roles of our APPs and house staff who aren't the ones necessarily seeing the patients, but instead they're providing this connection to their loved ones. That's so important. I can't imagine the stress of having a family member in the ICU. And as you said, hospitals have made very important policies that you cannot have visitors and you need a way to communicate with the care team or with the patient if they're not ventilated. I love the idea of having iPads so you, you can video conference or use the patient's iPhone if they have one in order to make sure that you have communication so that you can tell the family members, oh, they're getting worse, they're getting better, what's going on? It's a very tough time to be sick with coronavirus, and it's a very lonely experience for a lot of patients. So I think as a medical community, we have to continue remembering that the, we are required to provide patient-centered care. And even when it is this stressful and we're having to talk about who's gonna be on the vent and who's gonna be in the ICU and dealing with the surge of patients, we still have a responsibility to the patient in front of us. Another thing that is being talked about is the issue of the risk to healthcare workers. As you mentioned, we're going to be the ones intubating patients who are very sick and have coronavirus. What are the predictions for how many healthcare workers will get seriously infected? I think, honestly, most of us will get it at some point. What have you heard about that? Well, unfortunately, we've already seen some deaths of physicians in the workforce due to coronavirus exposure, whether it was community acquired, travel acquired, or occupational exposure, that I'm not sure of. So this is coming. Now it's been quoted to me, and I'm not sure where they got the number, that about 20% of the healthcare workforce will be compromised by coronavirus, either through that they have direct exposure and infection, then therefore have to stay home, or that their immediate loved one or someone that they care for has it and therefore they cannot come to work. So every institution has to have a plan for backup. And this is not just backup of one person. This is like two backups mm -hmm. because this is happening and it's not just a surge of patients, but the fact that you may not have that attending to be able to work that full week that you thought they would. Now, we had to be very careful about who's seeing the patients and how often they're seeing the patients because again we're trying to limit exposure so 
trying to bundle labs and you know do as many exams done by the attending as opposed to anybody else again to limit exposure of our trainees and our APPs these are important things to consider and the reality is is that we do have a lot of data with remote monitoring and this is another way that we can provide supportive care. Mm -hmm. It's basically inside to telemedicine in a lot of respects. And a lot of places are already doing tele-ICU care where there may be an APP staffing the ICU, but they have immediate telemedicine contact with a critical care physician. I've heard of other creative things that people are doing, such as running the IV tubing out the door and keeping the pumps out of the door so that if you need to titrate that drip every 10 minutes, then you're not donning and doffing, burning that PPE and having to go into the room and be re-exposed every 10 minutes to titrate the drip. The other thing in terms of physician backup and physician workforce is a lot of people are going to need to learn to be flexible. People yes. who might used to have been nine to five jobs may have to start learning to work 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shifts because they may have to be the ones who are called in to now staff an ICU, maybe with a telemedicine, tele-ICU backup. And so we really all need to rally. And I've been so impressed, at least in my field, in my department, people are really rallying. Our younger physicians are stepping up and taking more shifts in our ED respiratory slash COVID bay to protect the older physicians. And I know people are around the country really are rallying, but as we, as the frontline folks start to become sick or quarantined, other people are going to need to step up and take our place. Mount Sinai is definitely doing something very similar. I've been very impressed with our Institute for Critical Care Medicine. We have perhaps a surplus of intensivists, mostly because we have so many ICU beds and we had a rapid response service staffed by intensivists. So we have a lot of us and everybody's been willing to pitch in. And especially as it's a moving target and more ICUs are being opened that are for specifically COVID patients. When people need help, there are multiple patients that need intubation at the same time. Folks are coming in to step in to do the procedure. It's been amazing. And everybody has that flexibility. But on top of that, we also recognize though that it's still limited resource. The staffing is still limited resource. So there are folks, my colleagues who are doing training sessions for non-intensivists. And one of the things I would recommend to your listeners, if they have colleagues who are interested in getting trained up, there are resources on the SCCM website, on BMJ, to try to get spun up on how to manage these critically ill patients with ARDS. It's very difficult to teach people how to manage a vent because they haven't done one since medical school or from their residency, but it is possible. And it is a lot better to learn this when you're not doing it the last minute because you have that patient crashing in front of you. And now as we see healthcare workers getting sick, is there data or at least case reports or anything about whether we are then immune? Can we then walk in with no PPE and intubate these patients? Or is there still a risk of reinfection? So this is just based on case reports, but there are a few that talk about reinfection, that people have come down with coronavirus yet again, specifically one case report out of Japan, for instance. But it's very hard to estimate because we're not retesting. Again, a lot of our data is based on the limitations of our testing resources. Not every hospital has its own in-house PCR to test for coronavirus. 
Some are still depending on their Department of Health. Some are sending out to LabCorp or Quest. It's just the turnaround time is poor. And there's only so many tests to go around in certain parts of the country. So it's really important that all clinicians get an understanding of both what testing is available, who they're testing, what's the turnaround of that testing, and for the protection of our healthcare workers, where are these people under investigation going to be housed until that test comes back? Because not everybody's going to get into a negative pressure room. Well, Kasum, we've talked about so much, and I can only imagine how challenging and stretching this week has been for you personally. I would love any ideas about how are you coping with these challenges and the coming potential flood that may continue to increase before it decreases? That's a really great question that you're asking me, Christina, because I feel like that's something that's not talked about a lot. This idea, how are we coping? And everybody copes differently. I mean, we've had burnout seminars and, oh, sorry, wellness seminars so much (laughs) that we, there's all sorts of things that are recommended, but I don't have time to go to yoga right now. Right. Or even do these mindfulness apps that are free for healthcare providers, which is great. If that works for you, do it. For me, the things that are being been most helpful is actually the community of healthcare workers and both in person as well as virtually. I wasn't someone in the past who hung out with other doctors, mostly because I'm, I do research a lot of the times and the clinical folks are hung out themselves and the research folks hung out themselves. But in this setting, I'm hanging out with the clinical folks. I'm talking with the clinical folks. And that gives me this solid sense of community that we're all struggling together. And that's been amazing. People are helping me out from across the country with how to manage patients, sharing their experience over email, over social media. I would recommend that everybody figure out what's going to work for them. But there are so many groups out there that are willing to share resources on officially, what are they doing at their institution? What are they seeing? Because we're essentially having to crowdsource that information both in our own institution, as well as in the broader medical community. And that gives me a sense of empowerment that I can better serve my patients. From a researcher side of things, it is a very exciting time to be there. And while I was on service, I was still in the trenches with the researchers to figure out, can we enroll these patients? because that's the hope for the future, because I'm already doing the standard care and it's not working. Mm-hmm. So as much as possible to get these clinical trials off the ground, if there, people want to test to see if hydroxychloroquine work or doesn't work, I'm all for it because we need to have some answers before this gets any worse. A lot of healthcare workers are also really concerned not only about the impact of this on themselves, but will they bring it home to their families? Or how are their families going to be impacted by this? What are your thoughts or experiences with that? I have two young children and a husband who is not in the healthcare field. And so as a result, in New York, you're only eligible for the daytime childcare if you have two healthcare workers, two people who are employed. Otherwise, you don't get the childcare. So my husband's been with the kids, which and he's been amazing about it, but I constantly was worrying about bringing it home to the kids. So in fact, my husband and I had a whole procedure. I basically did not see the kids for the entire week I was on service. And I essentially had an almost like sterilization procedure that I went through 
before I came home, which was well after the kids went to bed, but this was always in my head. I had him checking their temperature twice a day, still have him doing it because if and when my kids get it, I will blame myself. And when we talked about wellness earlier, that will totally decimate any wellness that I've achieved from my camaraderie with my medical colleagues. But this is a reality. This is the time I didn't sign up to work in medicine because I thought I was going to protect my family from the things I'm going to bring home. We've, we've had conversations before that it's possible that they will get the flu or whatever else I bring home. And that's possible. But the most important thing is, is that they see me working on the front lines and they're supportive of me and I love them very much and I protect them as much as I can. So we're doing social distancing. Our schools have been closed for a while. They sort of do social distancing from me, but there's a lot of hand hygiene happening. <laughs> and I think that the biggest burden to a lot of healthcare workers with or without families is that the life outside as much as you can to outsource supportive services. There's a lot of towns filled with people who are staying at home who want to help the healthcare community, especially if you're in a smaller town, reaching out to your local town group about like what you might need. Don't be afraid because it, this is the time to ask. The community will come together around us. We just need to ask. Thank you, Kasum. Those are such great thoughts. This is an amazing time to be a healthcare worker. This is a challenging time. This is not what we signed up for necessarily, but also this is our time to really make a huge impact. And I'm hoping that this will at some point blow over. And in years to come, we'll look back and say, wow, I got to serve on the front lines of this major thing that happened. I got to really serve my community. I got to serve my country. I got to serve patients in a way that's really different from the way that we typically do treat patients. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. And I also feel like our resilience it's all very well to have resilience in times of peace, but now is when we really test it in times of war. Well, that's a great way to, to sum it up because I actually saw someone comparing what we're going through to our generation's World War II. Mm. You know, and I think that people are stepping up. I think that our communities are stepping up. I think that people both in and out of the healthcare field are stepping up and we will survive this. We will. We just need to be prepared and be flexible and be supportive of one another. Thank you, Kasim.